Hello everyone, welcome to this podcast. I'm David Kidman, a product liability and regulatory partner in our London office. In this episode, I'm delighted to hand the microphone to an esteemed barrister from London-based Henderson Chambers, Malcolm Sheehan KC. Malcolm's going to give us his view on various topics relevant to the healthcare and life sciences sector, formed from three decades of work advising life sciences clients and appearing at court on their behalf. Articulate and a pleasure to work with on every level is one of the testimonials on Malcolm Sheehan's KC's website. He's represented product manufacturers, healthcare providers and their insurers. And another of his testimonials states that he stands out for his expertise in pharmaceutical products and medical devices. He's been instructed in many of the leading group actions in this sector, including the Siroxat litigation, Biomet metal on metal hip litigation and the PIP breast implant group litigation. And as well as advising on civil litigation matters, He has expertise in providing product recall advice, product testing claims, regulatory and health and safety issues. And lastly, he brings a strong scientific brain to matters, and I personally have enjoyed instructing him and working with him on cases involving complex expert evidence. So in this podcast today, we're going to talk about four key topics and get Malcolm's views on them. Firstly, What are the main drivers of new life sciences group litigation in the UK? Secondly, what arguments have claimants concentrated on? Thirdly, how have defendants responded to these arguments and what view has the court taken? And fourthly, what is the judiciary's perception of life sciences defendants in group actions and how can you strengthen your position in front of the court? So we're going to start now with the first of those four topics. So, Malcolm, I'm going to put to you, what are the main drivers of new life sciences group litigation in the UK? Thanks, David. I'm still slightly blushing at that introduction, uh, but moving on from that. uh, Drivers of new life sciences um, group litigation in the UK. Products in the life sciences sector are often global. And one of the main drivers for new life sciences group actions in the UK is pre-existing litigation in other jurisdictions. In my experience, it's rare that I'm instructed in a UK matter where there has not been some litigation in another jurisdiction first. While historically and still the case, uh, that is often the US, uh, it is also the case now that prior litigation may have taken place in a number of other jurisdictions in Europe or elsewhere. Litigation in other jurisdictions is sometimes accompanied by what might be described as litigation-led science, scientific research that has effectively been commissioned for the purposes of litigation and which is heavily relied on to establish the alleged defect in the product. This of course leads to the need to demonstrate with expert evidence that litigation-led science lacks the objectivity and in many cases, the scientific rigor that is required. The trend for claims to spread from one jurisdiction to another does prevent benefits as well as drawbacks to life sciences defendants. While the proliferation of claims across jurisdictions is no doubt unwelcome, it does allow for knowledge gained in the defense of claims in one jurisdiction to be used elsewhere. Another significant driver is the increasing size and number of commercial litigation funders. Uh, 
They are now large, very well funded, and on the lookout for claims that fit their funding model. One of the key aspects of which is the existence of a defendant who they perceive to have deep pockets. And the life science sector is often seen in that way by litigation funders. Thirdly, regulatory action, uh, such as the issue in the UK or elsewhere of a field safety notice or its equivalent, remains one of the factors most likely to shine light on a product and prompt firms acting for claimants to start trying to recruit clients. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, what I thought was quite interesting about that is the relevance of uh, related litigation in other jurisdictions. And I think that to me emphasises the need to have a coordinated approach across borders. But it also to me brings to mind the um, uh, class actions uh, directive in the EU. Um, and I do wonder whether when you have parallel uh, claims in different jurisdictions involving life sciences products, whether we are going to see a take up of the ability to have cross-border class actions across the EU. Um, but anyway, mo moving on to the second topic now, uh, which is uh, which arguments have claimants concentrated on in some of the life sciences litigation that you've seen? Yes, well, unsurprisingly, claimants representatives look to what they think will be the quickest and easiest route to establishing liability. In the UK, that has tended to be by bringing claims under the Consumer Protection Act. Although based on an EU directive, this is domestic legislation which continues to apply following the end of the post-Brexit implementation period. Life sciences claims under the CPA tended to focus on identifying an alleged harmful characteristic in the product and seeking to demonstrate that this characteristic renders the product defective. This approach by claimants had some support in England based on one of the few High Court decisions dealing with the meaning of defect under the Consumer Protection Act. Separately, it is also increasingly the case that claimants will plead information defect cases which are combined with lack of consent arguments. Claimants argue that life sciences defendants fail to provide sufficient information about the risks associated with their products and that this has led to claimants being unable to give informed consent to their treatment with the product. While such lack of informed consent claims are principally addressed to healthcare providers, they are increasingly being included as at least part of the pleaded defect claims in product liability group actions in the life sciences sector in England and Wales. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, and the other side of the coin perhaps to that is how have defendants responded to these sorts of arguments and what view has the court taken? Yes, well, in England, defendants in the life sciences sector uh, particularly medical device and pharmaceutical uh, defendants, uh, have successfully persuaded the court that the single harmful characteristic approach to establishing defect is wrong. The courts have now accepted that a holistic approach to the assessment of defect is required. The overall safety profile of the product needs to be considered. 
and a difference in performance in relation to a particular characteristic of a product will not be enough to establish a defect in the product in itself. This approach, while allowing the court to make an in the round uh, assessment of the safety of the product, does expand the scope of the issues that are before the court. And so life sciences defendants need to be aware of the effect that this has on, for instance, the extent of necessary disclosure. In relation to the introduction of new technologies, uh, defendants in this jurisdiction have also been successful in establishing that the court needs to consider the entitled expectations of persons generally as to the safety of the product at the time it was introduced to market. This can be of great assistance as claimants have often sought to compare alleged defective products with contemporary standards rather than the position that applied at the time that the product was brought to market. The legal status of the information defect and informed consent question is still at large before the English courts and I would expect that that issue will be tackled in the product liability context before long and most likely that will be in the context of a pharmaceutical or indeed a medical device claim. Thank you Malcolm. Um, to me I mean that that emphasizes that we're having a growing divergence between the relatively defendant friendly regime in the UK um, or at least England and Wales um, compared to the the scope of the proposed new product liability directive in the EU which brings in a lot of claimant friendly provisions such as uh, presumptions of defect um, and there's not really any clarity as to whether and when uh, in England and Wales we'll see a, a revision of our own Consumer Protection Act but at the moment it strikes me that it is a relatively defendant friendly jurisdiction. Um, Moving on then and, and to our last topic today um, and, and perhaps a slightly more subjective one building on on your own personal experience. Uh, what is the judiciary's perception of life sciences defendants in group actions and how can you strengthen your position as a defendant in front of the court? Well, the English courts have a long history of dealing with life sciences group actions. Indeed, the English court's procedures for dealing with group claims largely developed from the court's experience of case managing pharmaceutical group actions uh, over an extended period. A key feature of product liability disputes in the UK is that they are determined by a single judge rather than by a jury. Judges are typically high quality and very experienced in dealing with complex claims, even if many of them may have no specific life sciences sector experience. English judges often have a good appreciation of and respect for the regulatory regimes that apply to life sciences products and a defendant who can demonstrate good compliance with their regulatory obligations will usually assist their position defending claims. In general, the English courts will regard life sciences defendants as well resourced and this leads to certain expectations about the degree of assistance that they will give to the court. The courts increasingly expect a high degree of cooperation between the parties about the presentation of technical evidence and a life sciences defendant who engages positively 
and helpfully will that with that process will certainly improve their standing in the eyes of the courts. The courts will also expect a realistic approach to disclosure, both in relation to its scope, its timing and its organisation. Life sciences defendants can, however, be reassured that the English courts have developed a, a very uh, well-established practice of confidentiality ring orders in respect of uh, commercially confidential information. And so the wide ranging obligations to give disclosure which apply in England do have uh, necessary protections. Overall, my experience and my view is that life sciences defendants can expect a fair hearing before English judges and that fair he hearing will be uh, a rigorous examination of the issues uh, based on complex factual evidence and extensive assistance from experts. Thank you, Malcolm. I found that incredibly insightful, um, particularly on your own observations from, from the litigation you've been involved with. Um, that brings us to the end of our podcast today. And if you'd like to hear more from Simmons & Simmons in relation to liability issues affecting the healthcare and life sciences sector, please check out our other episodes in this series. We've covered topics such as the proposed new product liability directive in those other episodes and clinical trials, the state of the art defence, artificial intelligence, anxiety damage and class actions. And if you've got any questions, please feel free to reach out to us uh, either for me at david.kidman at simmons-simmons.com uh, or if you'd like to get in touch with uh, our very special guest, Malcolm, um, you can do so via clarks spelled c-l-e-r-k-s at hendersonchambers.co.uk thank you so much for listening today